Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined as always by Brian Gottlieb. And I guess we're going to talk about Standard. There's some interesting things, I shall say, happening in older formats, but Standard still seems the most relevant, yeah? Yeah, it's hard because I I think the player base is very fractured right now. And I, I know a lot of our listeners do love when we do modern episodes, pioneer episodes. And I, I've heard from a lot of people who are like, well, I'm, I'm not listening as much because you guys aren't doing those episodes. And I, I get that. If that's your thing, uh, that's fine. But a lot of people just can't play those formats right now. There's not a huge install base on Magic Online. I kind of feel like it's the same people playing these challenges every single week. They're, they're all bots, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's all AIs at this point just battling against each other. But, uh, you know, we love those formats. We'll, we'll touch on them, but we have to go with what the broadest percentage of our listener base is currently playing. And I think that remains standard for the time being. You know what would be nice? Is if there was like a reason to play Historic right now. That would be swell. And uh, I think Historic's probably pretty interesting, but there's not one. I, I mean, like there was a chance the SCG tour would go with that for their their formats because they left their formats unannounced i think wisely so so they could really you know get a sense with of how standard was going given how rocky standard has been true good idea yeah but it's been good and i think they made the correct call to stay with standard because you want uh, as many engaged possible players as you can get just like we want as many engaged listeners as we can possibly get so that leads us to standard for the time being hmm how do we get everyone on the same page uh if only there was some like way we could organize the play so it was oh. like going in a particular direction. Then I think we could achieve that goal. Wait, are you trying to walk back the the sealed episode? Or are you saying it was not worth it for us to do that? <laughs> um, well, from a listenership perspective, it probably was not worth it. From a happiness perspective, I think it was 100% worth it. Because I heard from a lot of people who were like, this really helped me. I found this very useful. So if, you know, if, if one person reached out with those sentiments, I would be happy to do that episode. Uh, I, so I heard I, I heard from like twos of people. There you go. Two people. Episodes, so. Totally worth it. I, seriously, that's all I need. Like if, if somebody is particularly happy with something we do, then that's enough to keep me going. Yeah, fair enough. Man, uh, so last weekend there was the MPL and Rivals Kaldheim League weekend thing. There was also a PTQ thing on Arena and don't, don't even try and get the names right anymore. You Just know, call the, them what you the, want. The thing with the stuff, with the business, right. the, the delis and the happenings. Yeah. I watched a lot of the league weekend stuff and it was, it was okay. It was just like a lot of stuff that I had kind of already seen play out or, or had played out myself, you know? So it wasn't super interesting. There wasn't a ton of innovation there were a couple exceptions to that where it's like, oh, innovation plus actually being good. Uh, so that's always nice to see. But yeah, for the most part, it was a, a lot of the same decks just kind of jamming into each other. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that comes down to the incentives present. Like a horrific performance can possibly doom your entire magic career. Whereas if you can like put together a solid performance and fall in the middle of the pack, that's fine and you can keep going and keep your job. So there's a lot of really perverse incentives with the way the league play is set up that I I do think discourages real dramatic risk-taking. Man, when you put it like, oh, you have a bad weekend, you lose your job, like that's that's pretty brutal, you know? It is is pretty brutal. And there are a lot of players expressing that they're 
a little worn down by the league weekends. And that was, that was tough to see because like, I'm, I'm thinking back to my experience competing in the limited pro tours I did play, but it never felt like a drag. Like I I was pumped to show up at every pro tour and it was something special. And granted, this isn't like a pro tour, but this is supposed to be like a hallmark event for magic organized play. And it having such a negative effect on its participants was, it was tough to swallow. And I, I think like if you're most like, these are the most enfranchised players in the world. Nobody should care about magic more than they do. And if they're like, yeah, I'm not really loving this right now. You should listen to them and you should understand where things are going wrong. And I, I think a lot of it is the incentives. A lot of it is being forced to play from home. I'll say that. Like, I don't, think that's the optimal way to build a league, but that's always what this league was going to be. That's not a COVID concession, I don't believe. I think like we're always supposed to do it like this. So yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's how it was even in the, the initial year was that you play your matches from home. And obviously that creates a lot of awkwardness where uh, I don't know. It's at some point, I think in the wrap up article, the highlights article, they talk about how, ha ha ha, like, Li Shi Chan always has to play in the middle of the night. Isn't that funny? And it's like, no, no, not funny. No, it's not. It's, it's messed up. Yeah. And granted, like you would face that kind of stuff on the pro tour where depending on where the pro tour was, some people would certainly be geographically favored because I didn't have to deal with jet lag or, you know, a a brutal travel schedule, but it got distributed over time. And I'm not going to say it was even, it certainly favored American players, but at, at least there was some like back and forth where we were traveling to different time zones and, in Europe or in Asia and everyone got a chance to be on the good side of the the equation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's pretty awkward. I, I want them to have weekends like this, but have them just be like, you know, four a year, three a year, something like that. And just have them be like mini worlds tournaments that yeah. also, work towards your your yep. standing you know it should be a small tournament that that's just the that's how you break this and make it interesting again is it's just like right. little small tournaments this league play does it does not engage me it does not spark my interest the players don't love it either so who's it really for at this point and i don't the viewership is not outstanding or anything it's it's passable for sure but small tournament seems so much better and you can assign points in the same way like there's there's no reason not to like I, like I get there's more variance inherent in that way, but like just smooth out some of the ups and downs of the players club system and then you can bear variance because the old system had a ton of variance, but like you only had to hit a certain threshold and the whole thing needs to be reexamined and we've talked about it ad nauseum at this point. So I, I'll try not to go into it again, but every single time it rears its head, I'm just like, man, I, I want so much better for everyone involved with the game right now. Yeah, it's it's also just like really hard to care about a match where it's someone who's like five one playing against someone who's one five or whatever. Sure. Just like it's it's all very like skewed and kind of messed up. And granted, I don't think they're showing a lot of those matches, but the bad weekend problem too. It's like how could you not feel for Martin after this weekend where he just has to sit there and just get pummeled round after round after round. And I'm, I'm like, trust me, I'm not dragging Martin whatsoever. One of the best players in the history of the game, but like everyone has bad tournaments, bad weekends, and his was never ending. It just went on and on and on. What a brutal experience. Yeah. I would have, I would have just stopped playing. <laughs> right. I don't, I, mean, I, don't, I, I would have dropped. I don't know. I, I can't imagine having to go through that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly can't be good. And 
I don't know. You're like 0 10 on the weekend playing that 11th match, and it's just got to be like, man, get me the hell out of here, you know? Yeah. 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 I can't imagine. Uh, so these deck lists were submitted a little bit early. I don't know if it was like the Monday before the tournament or whatever. That's around when I would guess. And there, the new thing, I guess, to come out of this is the Naya Fury deck, which we talked about last week. And when they submitted their decks, it was like, you know, still relatively fresh and new, right? Right. The, the list that people submitted definitely looked like they were just like hot off the press. Uh, not a ton of innovation was spread throughout those, which is fine. Uh, there were some lists like Sultai, the, like the Czech Houses version of Sultai looked good. It looked like a good version of that deck, mm-hmm. uh, at least for like this metagame. And everything else was kind of normal. A lot of mono white, a lot of mono red, a lot of different adventure decks. And then people trying to do cool stuff and mostly failing. Yeah, I I think if there is a breakout story, it's not actually the progression of the Naya Adventures deck, it's the regression of it. Because if you if you break down the results between Naya Fury and Naya Adventures lacking Fury, and that's something played by like Reed Duke, William Jensen, uh Ely Cassis, all, all played a deck that looks older in a lot of ways that just doesn't have that package uh, but they outperformed the fury deck by a pretty large margin i think they had the best performing deck on the weekend and it's just a very classical take on naya adventures leveraging these incredible sources of card advantage and one of the things i posited is why why do you make this decision why do you regress when there is this hot new technology and in my head it's when you say I know how to answer everything in the format. Like if I get enough cards, I will play my way out of any situation. And this color combination has the tools to do whatever I need to do, given I just established this great hench and then it'll snowball out of control. And I think that checks out given how this deck is built. Like you look at the odd inclusions, Max Giant Killer, Random Yasharn, uh, Three Scavenger News, which is a card that has very much fallen out of favor. Main deck, Max Vandal. Uh, and some fire prophecies. So unique inclusions. But I think if you've played any games with this deck, and I have, I kind of wanted to feel, you know, what's the difference here? Why is there something that looks like a regression on its face, but turned out to be the correct call? And it just felt like you could play out of any game. And you put this deck in the hands of some extremely talented players, and you end up with the type of results that they posted on the weekend. So do you know what the number for the Fury decks was? Because I'm, I'm curious about that. I saw a breakdown somewhere. I, it may have been uh, Tristan from our Discord who broke it down by Fury and Adventures. But I, I remember, and this isn't exact, this is just going off my memory, Fury did fine. It was like a 52-53% a win rate or something like that. Okay. But the the version broken down to like Naya Adventures was like 58-59% or something like that. So, you know, small sample size, certainly in range of being similar. But playing this deck, it did feel like, okay, this was a wise choice for the weekend. And I think it's about the metagame finally settling down. I think the targets were very clear going into this weekend, and this deck reflected that. Yeah, the, the Wizards page has Naya Adventures, both Fury and the more classical one lumped together and it's a 57% win rate. And I imagined that, you know, given that Reed and them had such good records, they were carrying that by a lot. So I didn't know if, if uh, Naya Fury was above or below 
Yeah. I, like I said, I don't have it in front of me and I don't remember where I saw it, so I can't reference it. But I remember it being fine. Not spectacular, but fine. Right. Yeah. So the the thing that I'm skeptical of with the regressive Naya deck is that I, I certainly want to build my decks in that way, right? Like bunch of great hinges, screw Ember Cleave. I'm just going to try and do this thing is that there's like emergent ultimatum and all runs epiphany and even, even like the cycling decks, right? Where a lot of the decks that exist in the format can actually go over the top of you. And there, there are matchups, you know, like mono red, mono white, like obviously you'd much rather have a great hinge than an Ember Cleave for a lot of different reasons in, yeah. in like the vast majority of scenarios. Right. So I, I get it. I'm just scared of like the other part of the metagame. And I don't really see a lot of good ways to address that in Naya. I think it's part metagame call where you expect this to be the week that the Sultai decks start to tail off. And that mostly played out only six copies of Sultai uh, across the two league play weekends. And that was like the fifth most played deck. It was just the one team though, too. Right, right, right. So if, if that team doesn't reach the conclusion of we want to play this deck, the deck is just gone from the metagame, right? And you kind of get why. It wasn't having a lot of success on the SCG Tour. And you mentioned they did a good job of rebuilding the deck, making a good version of it. So you understand why they were able to put up a pretty good record. It says on the Wizards site, 54.5% win rate. So, you know, nothing nothing to scoff at, to be sure. But I, I think there was room for there to just be almost no Sultai. And also the sideboard of this deck is very cognizant of the things it's going to be facing. And I, I think you shift a little bit at that point and look to control those games then. You're still a dog, I think, to something like Sultai. But I think you're just saying, okay, we don't believe this deck is all that good anymore. We expect fewer people to play it. And you have a puncher's chance when you're set up like this. Like sometimes you just make a bunch of bone crusher giants and Kazandu mammoths and you run over your opponent and you beat them. And it's not what you want to bank on, but it, it can pull you out of some really tough situations or you just get wide enough where like they do their thing and you can still beat them despite that, which I think this deck is also very good at doing. Yeah. So this Naya deck very much looks like it was meant to beat up on creature decks and other adventures decks. And I think it does a really good job of that. Yeah, one of the things about Giant Killer is that it was particularly well positioned for this weekend. It not only challenged the Goldspan Dragons of the uh, opposing Naya decks, and obviously, you know, there's ways to play around that. There's like Sajiri Shelter, which can sometimes still protect it, but you, you can't just let them do their thing. And I think Giant Killer was perfect for that. But also like being able to get Vorinclex, I got it right on the first pass. Nice. At, at first shot with Giant Killer when it comes into play, that's usually enough to get you the time you need to like be able to wither the beating that they're about to put on you and find lethal on the next turn. So I, I like well, it in that matchup as well. So I'm I'm worried about the scenarios where they basically like kill all of your stuff, strand your great henges, and then just win at their leisure. You know, I'm not worried about you have four creatures and they're like desperation ultimatuming. But even then there are scenarios where, you know, they get shadow verdict, shadows verdict. Time walk X, maybe X is like Kira best to see gods or something, right? And then you're in a bad situation. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to argue. It's like, it's good and you're fine and you don't have to worry about it. I, I, I'm very sure the matchup swings in Sultai's favor with this setup. I, I just think like it was a calculated decision and one that paid off. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I wasn't really impressed with the Fury decks. Like I was expecting to be kind of impressed. And I think that it's... 
certainly something that is better when your opponent doesn't know what's going on with your deck and certainly doesn't have like a week or two to prepare for it and like test against it and stuff, right? Sure. So, yeah, I, I think that's always true of like the split plan decks, right? When you get any surprise equity from right. a deck like that, it's so huge. And at the time, Nye Adventures was pretty normal. And I, I think it, even in the case of like the Sultai matchup, right? It's like, okay, they have a, a gold span dragon, but I don't need to deal with that like immediately. You know, I can spend right. my turn maybe like preparing to ultimatum next turn or whatever. And then you just get combo killed. That basically just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. I, I think it was a good ad- adaption from the field. And that's always going to be what happens when you have really good players going at it. So not surprised, but it, it still seems like the fail states on these decks are so good, right? That's the thing about Edgewall Innkeepers is you just don't fail yeah. all that often. Like you you always have a fine game plan, even when people are prepared. So, and I think that's going to be true throughout Edgewall Innkeepers life. You just can't hold this card down. No, of course. Kind of wish that it got the axe instead of Clover, but whatever. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I would have just taken both out. I, I think like well, the, that too. The, in a in a block with so many mistakes, you give adventures a pass, but adventures are just two magic cards in one. And like I don't know how regular magic cards are supposed to stand up in the face of that. And then you give them this ridiculous draw engine on top of it. It's just it's out there, man. Right. I mean Bone Crusher, Love Struck Beast, in, in this case, Giant Killer too. It's like we'd be playing these cards anyway. You don't need to yep. give us Innkeeper. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, going forward, I don't think that there's a whole lot of reason to play the Fury version unless the metagame changes significantly. I agree with you. I, I said in my article, I think this is the way forward for Naya for at least the short term, and nothing no, nothing stays static in this metagame. It's it's a good metagame. It, it rotates a lot. There's small moves to make, big moves to make, and it's it's been exciting and cool to see throughout. But at this moment, this is the version of Naya I would play. I expect something to rise up to punish this, just like everything else has been punished in this format. It's pretty good at cycling through all the options. So the deck that maybe had the best win rate, again, I'm not sure like what reads Naya list, their record with it was, but uh, Teamer Adventures had a 65% win rate, although even, you know, smaller sample size than a lot of the other decks here, like there are only five players playing it. Yeah, and I think that was mostly in the Rivals League, if I recall correctly. And I'm doing yeah. a quick scroll through now. I, I think only one player in the MPL chose to play the Teamer Adventures list. And that's an interesting distinction. I mean, I don't really know what to make of it, but it's it's a data point worth considering. Yeah, it is weird. I, I don't know why this deck has been so underrated. Uh, I, I wrote about it this week and you know brought brought that up a little bit. It's like not really worth harping on or anything but i think that this this deck does a lot of the things that the naya deck is trying to do where you know you're a little weak to like gold span dragon combos or at the very least like you know that players are going to play the naya deck so you need some way to interact with it so you go to giant killer and giant killer is just kind of good across the board and teamer solves that issue you know maybe not as well but like with brazen borrower and stuff like that mm-hmm. and then you have things like all runs epiphany that just gives you an edge uh, against decks like Naya, especially where they don't have counter spells to actually interact with it. You know, you're just free to cast your big spell and know that it's going to happen. And then against uh, Sultai and things like that, you just have a bunch of counter spells. So yeah. this deck is awesome. 
I agree with you. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of other stuff that I saw people trying to do uh, in some of the more fringe deck lists. And I just think this is a better way of doing it. In particular, like there's a Sultai Rogues list that I want to talk about in a little bit that didn't really have a great weekend, but interesting idea. But is, is my boy Riser, man. Yeah. Yeah. I saw. I think. I think his was the first match that I, I tuned into, and I just saw the deck list. I'm like, Riser, no. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, yeah, I didn't know if you're going to defend your boy here. I, I didn't love the deck list. I I get the theory behind it, but I just just think you can do it better with Teamer Adventures. I think it's the worst Riser deck I've ever seen. Okay. And now, that's, that, that's not so bad, right? Like, there's a lot no, of room to be the not. worst Riser deck and still be interesting and like pretty unique yeah he's like kind of hit or miss but he he takes a lot of shots right and right. i really respect that but this is just one of those things where it's like i i don't even really see what you're going for you know and won like a third of his matches so kind of got yeah. beat up yeah tough weekend uh i think the idea is just like shore up some of the weaknesses of rogues just by the addition of love struck beasts and i get it i I mean i think love struck beast is the best card in standard or the most important is often how i phrase that so i I think it's the most important card in standard but if if you're playing it you can do better i think bbd did a better job of that with his list just playing like deadweight's main deck and stuff okay yeah there's ways to do it within color uh or or maybe they weren't maybe they weren't main deck maybe they're a sideboard but still my theory is if you is, is that rogues is more of like a metagame call, and if you have to warp rogues that dramatically, you're just not supposed to be playing it. I agree um, with that. I agree yeah. with that 100. Uh, I do think that now, especially, there are different ways to build it, and we talked about that a little bit when we went through the the challenges, right? Yep. Uh, where there was like an interesting one that didn't have into the story, and it's like okay, that's that's reasonable. I could see how that would be viable. And now there are things like season Hallowblade that you certainly have to address. And now you're yep. starting to see like dead weights pop up, which is good. It combos with Luris anyway. I think that there are different ways to go about it, but yeah, I mean, if at the end of the day, you're like, oh, I have to play like 20 cards that I wouldn't normally play just to get this matchup to be palatable. It's like, oh, go play something else. There's plenty of options. Yeah. Plenty of good options right now. I, I think that's the way I would approach it. All right. So teamer, Tell me all the things that you know about Teamer. Sell people on Teamer because I could I could talk about this deck for an hour probably. Yeah, I, I just think like it's so important to close games and the addition of Alrin's Epiphany does that so effectively, especially like, look, I build a lot of Alrin's Epiphany decks and I mostly build them to be quasi-competitive, I would say. Like I'm interested in the idea, so I'm trying to see other ways to do it. But the best version of an Alrin's Epiphany deck is always going to be one that can make a large battlefield and leverage an attack, an additional attack from Alvin's Epiphany and just win the game on the spot. And I've built a lot of control decks featuring Alvin's Epiphany that like benefit from sagas that I think are pretty good and Toski decks that are like small ball and you're supposed to chain into additional epiphanies and all that stuff is good. Alvin's Epiphany is a very strong magic card and there's a lot of ways to make it work. But I think ultimately the best way to make it work is just... I have this serious battlefield presence. I can do you chunks of damage. I even have a mana engine in the form of Goldspan Dragon, so I'm able to accelerate to this card a little bit. And if you give me a window, I will just kill you. That's it. You're not going to get chances to do ultimatum nonsense or set up your combo until it's completely safe, until I have to put my shields down because I'm always going to have my sought coming mana open. You have to think about that. I have the potential to punish you at instant speed and Brazen Borrower as well. So there's, there's plenty of play 
and you're just not going to get the clean window to do the things you want to do. And if you give them too much time, they will epiphany you. And against decks that don't have counter magic, epiphany feels so it's just like there's there's no risk. There's there's no fear when you jam your epiphany, you get paid so hard every time. The worst that they can do is like, oh, maybe they kill one of your creatures right, or whatever. But Great. Okay. I picked up two more. I'll live with it. Yep. Uh, I Like I said, I like this deck a lot. Uh, Epiphany versus like Great Henge out of Naya. I'm pretty sure Epiphany wins in a lot of those scenarios. I wouldn't downplay the ability to get into the air with this setup, right? Like being able to get wide in the air with Brazen Borrower. Uh, the Epiphany Birds, and some Goldspan Dragons. Like, a lot of battlefields get bogged down. And especially when the Great Henge gets involved, you can often end up with just two battlefields staring at each other because all the creatures are oversized. There's really no window to go through. But the Flash and Brazen Borrow at the end of your turn and then make my Alaran's Epiphany and just dome you for a large amount of damage out of nowhere, it, it's so, so satisfying. And you're just, you know, taking 13 damage that you weren't expecting to take in a one-turn window. And that's not something you can really play around. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting that your last epiphany is also going to lead into Obosh too. Right, good point, yeah. So I I get why this is an Obosh deck. I think Obosh makes sense here. Uh, for the most part, I think that Obosh post rules change is just not great in general, but Epiphany just curves so well into it. Yeah. Right. So, and and also there's Goldspan Dragon, which can make it seem kind of trivial to actually get it out there. And you're not giving up a lot, but uh, there are some things that became like more apparent this weekend where it was like, oh, like Obosh is like really hampering your, your card choices in a lot of scenarios. And like Naya is one of them where, you have like saw it coming and mystical dispute as your counter magic. And mm-hmm. both are a little bit awkward, a little bit clunky. And then there was the cycling matchup, which only two players played it, but they like, this was the second best performing deck. I think it was like 62%. Yeah. Well, there's, there's also, there's four color cycling and Jeskai cycling. Oh, okay. Um, so there's a break between the two. Yeah. But bo- okay. Both so, did well though. So four color cycling, 61% Jeskai 52, which is not, anything to get super excited about, but it's still solid, right? I, I think now you're looking at a few weeks of very good performances from this deck where it's less like, oh, here's a breakout performance and more, here's a body of work that has been put together that says this is a real deck and nobody really accounts for it in any planning sideboard guides. It's just like, oh yeah, yeah, cycling's out there, but it doesn't get the probably respect it deserves at this point. Yeah, you see the occasional like Tormod's Crypt in- yep. uh, like Guide Lantern. Yeah, Autumn Autumn Burchette is is really good at this. Where I I notice like her sideboards, I'm just like, why is that there? Oh yeah, cycling. Like I guess that's a thing. But like, you know, Autumn is is prepared for it because she knows that it's a good deck, right? Right. And just yeah, not a lot of people end up playing it, but it had a, a pretty good weekend. And you know, there are two distinctions, right? Like four color and Jeskai, and like Kowalski's deck was a little more out there where he had Iron Craig Pyromancer and uh, Teferi, the four mana Teferi, Master yep. of Time. Yep. And and stuff like that. And Indomitable Alliance, Improbable Alliance, I always mess that up. Uh, improbable, is, is, right? It's, it's improbable, yeah. But I okay. always call I it actually Indomitable. Know one. Good. That, that card is like creeping up more and more into main decks. And yep. it's it's a huge problem for decks that are not playing Embercleave. And that, that definitely happened to... Uh, I think it was Chris Patello. 
it was it was definitely like that matchup where it was, it was teamer against cycling and it was just the, the fairies held them off uh maybe now maybe it wasn't chris maybe it was someone playing naya i think that's what it was okay whereas like the fairies against goldspan dragon and like trying to get it through and it was like actually really hard yeah, I, I think that's a real card. It's it's one that we were very interested in early on. I mean, all this like draw two stuff, Iron Greg, Pyromancer. I remember spending a lot of time on these decks and just coming out dissatisfied in the great end. deck for 2008. Right. But the whole cycling uh Zenith Flare thing doesn't feel like 2008 stuff. Like that feels like silly modern magic. Like well, okay, I'm going to back that up. It actually does feel like 2008 magic, but like a dredge deck where it's just not doing typical magic and you are still allowed to play a game that makes no sense under the conventional rules of magic, but for some reason is allowed to exist. Uh, it's odd in the way decks used to be odd, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And we, we don't see a lot of weird sideways stuff like that anymore. Right. So I, I'm I'm happy that this deck is part of the metagame. I think it's like, it's not the most fun to play with or against, but like... It's good that there's curveballs and change-ups and, and weird things happening from time to time. Well, now that we have all the weird mana bases and you can do a bunch of wild stuff with the deck, I'm more inclined to actually try it before than when it was just a Boros deck. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. So I'm interested. You're certainly getting access to a lot more games. Like, There's many more things you can do when your mana is stable and across three or four colors. So. Yeah, you saw that with uh, Kowalski's deck. And I don't know if his take was great. It's certainly more clunky, but it's got more of like a mid to late game push than the normal lists. But I don't know if that's necessarily what you want versus just being as lean as possible and capping out and seeing the flare. And now you have this bitter blossom that is able to buy you a bunch of time that your other cards couldn't really accomplish. But in, in the case of like the teamer matchup versus cycling specifically, if cycling is going to get more popular, Obosh might have to go. And that's kind of what I was talking about in my article this week, where it's like the, the best card in the matchup is probably just Embercleave, but it also opens the door to a bunch of other stuff where it's like if you want to play Scavenging Ooze or Tormod Script or whatever you could. And then Disdainful Stroke is just the best counter against Naya because it tags right. Dragon and their card drawing stuff or Embercleave if they're doing that. So I actually like no Obosh right now, given what happened this weekend. But I mean, if those decks refuse to pick up, then yeah, keep playing Obosh because it's actually good in this deck. Do you think you can, I mean, if you were just solely focused on, I need to make this cycling matchup positive, can you just dump a bunch of soul guide lanterns into the problem and live on that and be satisfied that you're giving up a bunch of sideboard spots? So you, you need to do more. No, well, so it's, it's, Tough because Soul Guide Lantern solves one of the problems, but also in like a pretty bad way where it counters a Zenith Flare, but depending on like what part of the game it's happening in, they can pretty easily just rebuild and, and flare you again. Mm-hmm. So you you need like Graveyard Hate plus a Clock to not have Flare matter, but the problem is, is like they have Flourishing Fox on turn one that you have to kill. Sometimes Dranith Stinger you have to kill because you got nickel and dimed out by fairies or something. They have Improbable Alliance that you have to attack through. And it's just too much stuff, especially, you know, you're talking about Soul Guide Lantern or Clothis or whatever. And it's like that just doesn't solve one of the five ways that they're attacking you. Right. Yeah, the deck has diversified pretty dramatically at this point. Yeah, exactly. So it's just really difficult. I think the best way to go about it is 
graveyard hate plus clock, but in order for clock to matter, you need to be able to get through those fairies. And Embercleave is the best way to do it because Embercleave will beat like, you know, four to six fairies or whatever. Whereas a lot of the options, things like Shadow Spear or whatever, just don't really do that. It's like, all right, well, then they finally just quad block and keep on living their life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other like strange ways you could go to control that aspect of their game plan and not coming up with anything off the top of my head. Yeah. I was looking for like cloud thresher type of stuff. Right, uh, right, there's, right. there's, there's a bunch of different pyroclasms, but that obviously doesn't interact all that well. Uh, Chris was talking on Twitter about, I think Garrick's uprising is the name of the cards, like three man enchantment, your stuff has trample. Uh, and then if you have big creatures, you draw some cards or whatever, but like it yeah. not dealing the extra damage and not getting you over a bunch of fairies still. Like it's good when you have Lovestruck Beast against one fairy, right? But like when they have a bunch and a bunch of different blockers, then it, it still doesn't matter. Yeah, I think you really want something like uh, Karvek. How do you pronounce that card? I, don't, I have no Ooh, idea. I may as well yeah. straighten it out now. Uh, so since I was like six or whatever, I pronounced it Karvek, but I don't know. Okay. I, I would have said Karvek. I, I, I'm almost certain that's not correct based on the letters that actually appear in the name of the card. But yeah, that, like that persistent minus one, minus one effect is is really what I'm looking for, but obviously not in the colors of Teamer. Yeah, that card would be nice or something like it. That was basically what I what I wanted, what I was looking for. Yeah. And then that, that would help a lot because it it uh, takes Flourishing out the... Fox. Well, yeah, I mean, if if you have Caravac and they have, they're about to cast a 1-1 Fox or whatever, like they're... They're just going to cycle it, even if you don't have Caravac. Uh, fair so enough. It's, it's not, it's not going to matter at that point. But like the the Valiant Rescuer or whatever, the three one that makes tokens too, yeah, so yeah. all that stuff. So yeah, it picks off a lot of stuff. Yeah, that would be pretty nice. Uh, too bad Black is reserved mostly for just like spot removal and sweepers in this metagame. So like decks that could play Caravac don't necessarily care about Alliance anyway. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if there's space for it in like the Ultimatum deck. I could see it being a fine sideboard option. Yeah, but you just you don't care, right? Like you're you're just sweep the board with Shadows Verdict, and that buys you a couple turns, and then you just build towards something bigger. Well, but but they shift in in post board games, right? Like they take on kind of the the fish style role, so it's harder for you to do the big thing. Sure, no, that's fair. I mean that okay, so that's part of the problem too with the teamer matchup is that Epiphany is no longer a slam dunk against them because they get some amount of disputes or strokes or whatever against you. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a really important part of their game plan and one that gets overlooked uh, when people are evaluating this deck is just like there's not really anything else in the format that goes fish on you. Like Teamer kind of does it, but they still have these huge spells and they need to tap out and they need to like they need to pick their spots for their counter magic. They can't just, you know, go after you with one mana creatures and then cycle and make them a threat as the game goes on. So it's a very different right. play pattern this deck has access to. Yeah, but the the cycling deck can actually just become like a Delver deck in post board yeah. games if it wants yep. to and feel pretty similarly to that. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of its appeal that gets overlooked. Yeah, so like all of these things together and the fact that it has good mana now, I'm just like, okay, that's that's something I'm interested in. I'm, I'm on board with this now. Yeah, I would say it's time to like reevaluate your biases against this deck because it is it's solid. It has a lot of game plans. Is it is it like kind of boring? Do you spend a lot of turns just like you know, cycling your cards or whatever. Yeah. But you have really interesting deck building decisions and play decisions where basically like, you know, every turn cycle or every turn or 
you know, even like a, a single action from either player can cause you to have to switch game plans. And then there's this, the sideboarding stuff where I'm sure you do a lot of stuff differently, like play and draw and with what like the texture of your hand is and stuff like that. Like you get to do, you do make a lot of decisions. So the more we talk about this deck, the more I'm pleased with the dredge analogy, because like if you're just a casual observer and I'm, I'm talking like older versions of dredge that would just like led flame at you on turn one. And I, I played a ton of legacy dredge. It was one of my favorite legacy decks. And on its surface, it's just like stupid deck, discard your hand. Great. You killed me on turn one. Real interesting. But that's not where you get your points playing dredge. It's about knowing how to play these bizarro games and like slowly grinding your opponent with Icarids and shifting and having the right sideboard cards and building your deck properly, even down to like, oh, how many dread returns am I playing? Do I have these targets for this week? All of that stuff matters. And by gaining mastery of an archetype that's thought of as a little simple, a little like boring, you actually unlock all of this interesting stuff for yourself. So Adam Prozac said it best, where he described Dredge as a beatdown deck that draws seven cards per turn. I, that tracks, yeah. It, and, it's, it's not what people think it is in most instances. Yeah, and I, I mean, you and I are Dredge bros. We, we play Legacy Dredge, I think maybe in like different periods kind of, but ultimately it's the same thing where, yeah, you got to get scrappy with that Putrid sometimes, man, you mm-hmm. know? You gotta you gotta like discard some gas to make that thing a two two flyer. You have to hard cast Icarid sometimes. You know you just you do what you gotta do. Yeah, and like strange combat decisions came up all the time and bridge all triggers, things, dredge triggers. Yeah, that was probably my worst part when it came to dredge. I think I'm on camera forgetting quite a few of them. Oh no, bridge! Um, uh, like knowing like when to attack and block and like whether or not to like hold your bridge or like discard it because yeah, you knew yeah, that yeah, tra- yeah. trade was gonna happen. You know stuff like that. Yep, all that stuff comes up over and over, and it's, the, it's the more you play, the more it gets unlocked. Right, exactly, and I, yeah, the the cycling deck feels pretty similarly to that. Maybe not as complicated, but certainly in the the planning as far as like what your actual game plan is, uh, is is the hardest thing. Yep. So I'm I'm interested in that. I I don't know if it's like super super good right now. Uh, and Elrond's Epiphany does look nice, and Teemer has the Adventures package. You have, you know, good interaction basically across the board. Your card power level is just off the charts too. So it's like, I mean, this deck, this deck looks pretty nice. But the the cycling deck, it's like if you master it, you will be rewarded. I think. I think you're right. So I don't know. I, I actually don't want it to pick up in popularity, but I think <laughs> that you don't want to play against it all the time. Well. Like that, and I don't want people to like sideboard against it. And yep. yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of complaints that people could make when playing against the deck where it's like, well, I kept a hand that was good against like this game plan, but then I lost a fox. So the next game, I like mulled to a shock, and then they didn't have a fox, and I just lost their alliance. And you know, there's stuff like that where it's like, and eh, it's, it's not really good for magic for a deck to have like four different game plans. It's like, you know, Cobblade, where you have Stoneforge, Jace, and Wrath of God, and Counterspells. Yeah, but and, you know, dude, that's every deck now. That's that's like my my go to complaint about Magic as it stands is that every deck has multiple games. Like, look at look at the Naya deck that we're talking about, and how many ways that can theoretically win the game. It can beat you down, or it can draw its literal entire deck, or maybe it'll combo you. Whatever it feels like in that moment, it has access to, and that's been what feels like every deck for a while now. Is they can just all do everything. 
That is true, but Naya has issues, right? Because you are in Naya colors, they can't stop an ultimatum or an epiphany. Sure. So they they are still kind of pigeonholed into beating you down at some point. At some point, yeah. So may, maybe the the teamer version of adventures is a little bit clearer representation of that idea yes. where it can counter spells, it has time walks, it can beat you down, it has great hands, and it just does all these things very well. Yep. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, I've I've won a bunch of like <laughs> pretty ridiculously looking, like ridiculously bad looking games with Teamer. Yeah, that's always a good feeling. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's like, well, my opponent didn't play around me having Borrower into Top Deck Epiphany or something, you know, but mm. it happens. And decks like Naya don't really have that capability, right? If you like grind them down to zero, like they have zero. That's just where they're at. I think the rebuild potential is good, but yes, for sure. I'm thinking like no hand, no board pretty much or like no yeah, board but one card <laughs> every time i do that it's like the last card is edge wall innkeeper and then like the top three cards of their deck are adventures <laughs> and i don't know maybe i'm just cursed yeah no you're definitely cursed it's That's like okay. uh reverse collected company right well what else was there anything else that you actually liked from these tournaments uh, I, I thought Nassif's deck was interesting. Uh, he played four color Doom Foretold and brought him, his... Him and Mangucci have a problem, man. They are addicted to that. They they probably play too much uh, Doom Foretold, yes. But I, I thought Nassif made some interesting decisions. Uh, one of the things I really loved was like a hard focus on Lithoform Blight. And I, I think like, obviously Lithoform Blight is not to bear the brunt of this but look at how the mono white mono red aggro deck decks did in this tournament they did terribly uh mono white aggro 40 percent win rate mono red aggro 31 percent win rate uh and you know we had talked a lot about faceless haven being the most important card in standard that was absolutely true until people paid enough attention to it and i, I think they did this week and the answers started to pile up and those decks really got punished uh, so part of it was like Lithoform Blight from Nassif, but also he gave up on the Doom Foretolds, at least in some part. There was one in the main deck, three in the sideboard, and I thought that was a really interesting decision and a really interesting place for the metagame to end up. So I agree with you. I, I think they are both often handicapping themselves by going to this deck time after time, but I do get the appeal. It does a lot of things that other decks aren't always prepared for, and it has a lot of tools. You can find a lot of answers to everything, but... I do think it's operating on a slightly lower power level than the rest of the format. It's lower power level and you don't have like the I win button at seven mana like a lot of these other decks do. Yeah. Which, well, which so means you, they you can, kind of, you, you can have it at eight mana if you, if you want to go with dance, but it, it's not on the spot. You do need to untap with it. So Right. And dance is also just one of those cards that is really bad against the sideboard counter spells and yes, very vulnerable, even like graveyard hate stuff. You know, it's like, if you want to play, I think it's the Abzan ultimatum, the one that rebuys all the cards in your graveyard, which Nassif has done. Like he has played that yep. card before. It's like, okay, sure. I could see that. But even then that's not really like a turn seven thing. That's like a turn 10 thing. I don't know. I just, I, I don't like doing stuff like that. Like trying to control what your opponent's doing when you can try to, just slow them down and then play an I win card. Well, and so here's the other thing that Nassif did, and it doesn't go quite to the level of I win card, but this was very influential to me and in what I worked on this week. Also played for Archon of Sun's Grace, which 
is somewhat of an I win button in these setups because you can play it alongside Urian and you just like get a huge army out of nowhere and then it only takes one attack. So so there's a bit of that going on. I don't think it's as far as, you know, a combo kill or Alvarin's Epiphany, but it's at least acknowledging, yes, I do need to close these, close these games. But what it led me to do is build blue-white control with Alvarin's Epiphany and this card and try and find setups where I could just like maximize, make a really devastating board and leverage the power of Alvarin's Epiphany and Sagas together and use that to control my opponent's battlefield. And it came up with a really satisfying, nice deck that I think like, again, I am conceding that all of these decks are operating on a level that is just worse than adventure stuff. And that's going to be the case as long as Edgewall Innkeeper is around. But if you can find other reasons in the metagame to play them, I don't think they don't have their moments. You just have to pick them really, really carefully. So I, I think Nasif made the right moves for this week for this deck. And I think Nasif himself did fairly well. And a lot of that boils down to card choice. And I just think it's worth highlighting when you can find ways to make an archetype work. At the same time saying though, you made yourself play on hard mode by making this archetype work in the first place. Yeah, so I like Blight and Archon as answers to aggro. I think that that is really good and really smart. And if you're kind of making a hard read on the metagame, cool. But there are a decent amount of like landmines in the tournament where it's like, oh yeah, my deck is not very good against this, right? Right. And right. maybe that doesn't matter if you're just like going nine and three every weekend or whatever, eight and three. Well, that's what we talked about, right? There's incentives to just be like pretty average and do okay. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how much that factors into someone like Nasif's decision-making when it comes time for the tournament. Uh, how much would it have factored into your, like you're supposed to be playing these tournaments right now. How much would you be considering that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's so far removed for me because I, I if I were in the middle of it, it's like I would know the players a little bit better, like their deck choices, their history a little bit better. And mm. what I would do is like, look at what I expected the metagame to be and was like, okay, is this exploitable for me to play some really weird deck? And if it's not, then it's like, okay, then I just have to play a good deck and like tune it to beat other things. Right. And yeah, maybe Nassif looked at it and he's just like, yeah, I mean, Paul is going to play aggro and like all these other good players are going to play aggro. And if they don't play like, Mono red or mono white, they're probably going to play adventures. So I'm going to be good against that. Like Salty sucks, Rogue sucks. Uh, no one's going to play cycling, etc. You know, if he if he thought all of that, then yeah, his deck looks good. Yeah, I I will say I I don't often try to argue that I'm on this level of caliber of player, but when I was playing against these players a bunch for like the fandom legends tournaments week in and week out, I did find their deck selection to be somewhat predictable. And maybe part of that is just like lower stakes or, you know, quality of competition. So you believe you can get away with it and just like play the best deck. But it was basically exactly that process that I would go through every week. Like, can I exploit these people who I expect to do this, this, and this? And oftentimes it led me to some decks that were like clearly not the best deck, but what I thought were best decks for the tournament. And then it paid off. Sometimes I just played the best deck. Sometimes I would play Scape Shifter or something like that. And that would do the job as well. But occasionally I felt like there was an edge to be gained in this type of deck selection. And that goes back to like the Naya deck that we started this podcast with. As it Did it have a whole hold to Sultai? Almost definitely. But could you make a very good read that a lot of this field would abandon Sultai? I, I think so. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I, I don't even, I, I don't even know like what the numbers are specifically for Fury against Sultai because in theory, you know, they tap out to sweep you and then you get to combo kill them potentially. Mm -hmm. 
So you always have that out. But I also don't really want to draw Unleash Fury against a deck with a bunch of spot removal. So yeah, a lot of blanks. I, yeah, I don't know exactly what they're like what people's plan is in that matchup from the Naya side. But yeah, it is it is interesting where if you just assume that no one is gonna play Sultai anymore, but it's like that's that's just dangerous, you know? Like there's it is. There are going to be people who are working on the deck and the deck ultimately is, you know, like this ramp deck with a bunch of spot removal. And it's like, you can figure out ways to make that good against aggro. Like if, if the reason that Sultai is bad is that uh, there's a bunch of aggro decks, it's like, well, make your deck better against aggro. You know, what are you doing? You don't have to prepare for like mirrors anymore. You don't have to play the main deck negates and mystical disputes and all that nonsense. Like just right. make your deck as good against aggro as possible and that let your natural top end just kind of smash everyone else. And that's what Zifka's deck did. Yeah, if, if there's one thing that the Sultai archetype, broadly speaking, has proven it can do, it's adapt and alter itself to be good against different metagames, prepare for mirrors, prepare for aggro. It almost always has the tools to do so because its core is so robust. And granted, it's lost a lot of that. Like losing Uro is certainly a huge knock, but there's still the core of like ramp powerful spells going on. Do you want to talk a little bit about how they built the Sultai deck? Anything you found particularly interesting? <laughs> so I'm, I was kind of in the same boat as you where I was trying to do uh, Toski Epiphany stuff. And mm -hmm. once I started uh, tuning Teamer without Obosh, Toski was one of the cards that I wanted to put in my deck. And then I played some games against Sultai and the Asika's Chariot. They have three chariots in their deck. And just like, it doesn't brick Toski completely because, you know, you still have flyers, you have other tokens, whatever. But when Toski itself is not a threat... It's so much worse, right? True. So the the chariot against like my random Toski thing, it was like, okay, yeah, this is like actually good. It's like an extinction event without being an actual sweeper and can actually clock people and close games really quickly with the uh, Kraken tokens and stuff like that. So it's like that. that's one of the things where it's like that's a really good innovation that I think goes a long way to helping the aggro matchups. Yeah, really cool pickup. Uh, and it also, like, the recurring theme of find ways to close games, Asika's Chariot certainly does that. It can close things down very quickly. So, Yeah, I think, I don't know if this is meant to be there for that, but they have one Duress main deck. And mm -hmm. having one Duress that you can ultimate them for in mirror matches, like, if, if you get to ultimate them first, right? Like, what do you get? You know, you get, like, Vorinclex, Valky, and time walk and then they get rid of your time walk and you have these two things that they could just like untap and kill. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or just like ultimatum you back. And the duress means that if you get duress and time walk, you're either going to get another turn or like maybe duress their ultimatum and yeah, get something cool. else. So it's like, I don't know if it was meant for exactly that, but now having seen that, I don't think that I could play this deck without one duress main. That's interesting. Uh, uh, that's a good point too, is like, these things that appear to be small adaptations that could actually be tremendous, right? Because you gain access to them pretty reliably via emergent ultimatum and they can change entire game plans. Like you just mentioned, you have an entirely new way of approaching the mirror match. So that's really cool to see. Yeah. I mean, mostly the deck is like kind of the same. Like there's a couple mystical disputes to kind of hedge. They have two tangled florahedrons to make you a little bit more rampy, give you more things to do on turn two against aggro decks, which is nice. Uh, Seagate restoration to beat other Urian decks going long, mm -hmm. which they they probably need once their 
skewing themselves a little harder towards aggro. Yep. So like all, all this stuff just like looks really good. Like this, this list looks nice outside of the sideboard because you know, they, they overprep for mirrors, I think. Sure. But I mean, they, they had a list. They're like, Oh yeah, this deck has problems. We can solve it. It stands to reason that other teams right. would maybe think the same thing, whatever. So I don't know. Brad Brad wrote his article this week on the deck and talked about like the genesis of it and stuff like that, and talked about the sideboard and changes that he would make going forward. So check that out if you you want to get back on the Saltai train. Not you, Brian, because you should not you should not play Saltai. Yeah, I don't want to. So, yeah. so that's fine. Not going to be an issue. Good, I would great. rather uh, keep having decent win rates with my my weird decks. I don't really feel any draw to this Saltai list, so that's fine. Cool. Yeah, man, that's it. I, I think it's just like Chariot, really. It's a thing that gives you a lot of percentage against aggro without being just like a dead spot removal spell in some matchups, you know? Yeah, just going back to good old blocking and attacking. You love to see it. Classic magic. Yes, yeah, sort of. It's more like deter you from attacking. That's like classic, classic magic. So a stasis is what you're saying. Yes, it's, yeah. A Seeker's Chariot actually went to orb? Yeah, well... Winter or you'd still attack, right? So. Or it'd be tangle wire would be like the closest analysis analogy, right? I think stasis is good. Stasis is nice. Okay. You a stasis player back in the day? Uh I I was an admirer from afar. Okay. I, I lost to Stasis in a Grand Prix too, which pissed me off because like I I had played with Stasis, not in tournaments, but like I understood how the deck worked and like I still just blew it. I love playing it, Stasis decks. I'm a horrible human at my heart. I think it it makes me feel very bad. But uh, Stasis, Winter Orb, all that stuff just worked for me for some reason. Yeah, I like Stasis in theory, but then like you play the games and it's like, oh, this is this is really boring. Like you're not doing anything, right? And Correct. I want when I'm like grinding my opponent into dust or like you know making it so they can't play Magic. I want to actually have to work for it than just like I'll play an island every turn, whatever. It, it was just not appealing to me. Here's here's the conclusion I come to on that and why I liked it and why like I still like the idea of stasis decks. And I, I wouldn't argue that they should be included in the game again. But here's why when something stasis-esque happens, at least in the short term, I think it's net positive. One of the things about magic is that its rules like are pretty clearly designed to set up a certain set of scenarios, right? Like you're supposed to be entering combat, attacking, blocking. Uh, progressing through the game and accumulating mana and casting larger spells. And there, there's, a, there's a natural script that's supposed to be followed when it comes to a game. And the best games insist upon those scripts and then let you shatter them. And if Magic, when I started playing it, was just about creatures and attacking and blocking, I don't think it would have captured me the way it did. Like the fact that something like Stasis existed and something like necropotence decks which were very very odd and granted they became like more traditional over time but the early versions were like very resource denial heavy with like hypnotic specter dark ritual yeah dude never Nero's disc and inject, if that stuff inject that directly into my veins right if that stuff didn't exist i wouldn't have found the same draw to magic and that's why when i started teaching my wife this past year we started with pioneer and like i I built Lotus field combo and I showed her Lotus field combo and it's like kind of stupid in one sense because there's me 
you know, she's only getting comfortable with the game. And there's me on the other side of the table, just comboing off relentlessly and killing her on turn four. But like, I think you need to see that. I think you need to see what's possible. Yeah. That's what ignites your creative spark. Yeah, man. I I've said this a lot with like the beginner packs that they give people where it's like, well, this one has like a Shivan dragon and this one has a thorn elemental or whatever. Yeah, I don't it's think like, that's it. Yeah. Those are cool. Right. It's, but that's, that's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. This thing is sweet. Like on to the next one. Uh, but it's not the thing that actually hooks them. Yeah. Put a splinter twin in there. Like, I know that sounds crazy, but like the possibility of putting together some infinite combo, and it should probably be more complicated than just like splinter twin on my deceiver Exarch, but like something along those lines, make it a village bell ringer or something really inefficient. And I think if you show them that spark, that's what could really get them hooked for the long term. Right. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, seeing like halves of combos. Right. And I'm just like, oh, well, that card sucks. And then I find the other half, you know, yep. six months later or whatever. I'm like, wait a second. Right. And it's like, holy shit. Yeah. More like lore regeneration on my Thicket Basilisk. That that was good as a starting player for Magic. And I am sounding like a total boomer now, so I'll shut up. People listening to this podcast are like, what are these cards? I've never heard of this in my life. Yeah, that's fine, though. Yeah, for, for you playing Stasis, I can just imagine you like reveling in the fact that you don't have to do anything and you just, you know, really corny over the top, super villain, maniacal well, laugh, like upkeep my stasis, play my land, your turn. Ha ha ha. Keep in <laughs> mind, keep in mind that the vast, 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 vast majority of the magic games I played as a younger person were against my little brother. So yeah, when you yeah. add the torture. dynamics, you just yeah. want to torture him. Oh, absolutely. When you add the dynamics of being able to just beat up your little brother relentlessly, it, it really amplifies the need for griefing. What's the age difference between you and your brother? He is six years younger than me. Okay. No, that's wild. Uh, so my younger brother is also six years younger than me, but like I, I basically like pieced out when uh, I guess I was 21 Okay. So I don't know. At that point, it was like, I'm kind of like an adult and he's still a child and like beating up on him did not give me like that satisfaction or whatever. But yeah, my, my older brother was two years older than me. And so like we we had that going on because we were like close enough in age. And it was like the game is not fun unless one of us just like wants to never play the game again. <laughs> Correct. And it was always my brother who never wanted to play the game again because the difference was so large. But I, I think our circumstances were unique, too, in that we grew up super isolated. Like we lived in the forest in the middle of nowhere where our closest neighbor was like our grandmother a mile down the road. So it wasn't like you go hang out with the other kids or like our parents were dropping us off at friend's house. We were just with each other and there, there wasn't any other option, but do things together or do things by yourself. That was it. And so uh, he had to pick up a lot of my hobbies, I think by virtue of me being the older brother, but like right. still did a good job. Like, at the time I found magic, I would have been probably 12. So he's a six-year-old kid who had to learn magic and was like functional, at least understood the rules of the game and was able to play. So I, I think like he benefited from it, but probably I'm being a little kind to my interpretation of what I forced him to go through when likely, he was younger. Likely. I mean, I, I, I remember some experiences with my little brother where it's like, you know, we play Pokemon together and I was that, that was like my secret way of like trying to get him into magic basically it was right. like oh you know I'll, I'll play this pokemon game with you yeah sure and then we can try the the big boy card game after that i don't know man yeah it was just like it was it was so far removed as far as like you know 
the things that we were able to comprehend. And I had a friend who's also like very good at magic. So I was like pretty caught up on, on magic and strategy and stuff like that versus right. my, my little brother who like, you know, we didn't have the internet or whatever. So he was, he was screwed. Right. So it just, it felt kind of mean. Yeah. Maybe you're just a better person than I am. <laughs> I just reveled in it. And uh, that it still informs a lot of the dynamic between my brother and I, like <laughs> it's, it still is very much the core of competition and me savagely beating him and then forcing him to learn something new and then savagely beating him at it. And I don't know, I hope one day he just finds something where he can just school me repeatedly before we pass on from this mortal plane. He finds his one thing that yeah. he gets to just dominate me at because he, he hasn't found it yet. Well, how how is your brother as far as like, you know, competitiveness or whatever? Because my little brother, you know, like he wanted to like play the games and stuff, and he certainly wanted to win. But like, if if I just destroyed him in a game, it he wouldn't be like, okay, you know, how do I get better at this so I can put up more of a fight or whatever? He would just be like, eh, okay, maybe this is not for me, and he would just give it up. It's it's strange because my brother has some of that for sure, where like. He doesn't necessarily have the same drive I do where, I mean, that's why I, I ultimately beat him at everything, right? So if I lost, I would go right. absolutely apocalyptic and just study until I wasn't losing anymore. And yep. he doesn't really have that, but at the same time, he really wants to win. <laughs> so it's it's kind of the worst of both worlds where he really is invested in the outcome, but not willing to put in the work to get to the point where his outcomes are routinely good. But I mean, he plays he plays a ton of magic. He's He plays the challenges every weekend he's definitely in them so if you're if you're one of the magic online people you've certainly played against him a bunch on there so your brother's actually, a bot yeah he's a bot he top aided the pioneer challenge last weekend and he's got like he lost in a ptq finals before and has an scg top four so it's not like he's clueless he uh he, he can certainly play his way around the magic field but well now not- i now i want to go look at the pioneer challenges and by that i mean i am looking at the pioneer challenges and i want to critique your brother's deck building oh he just copied it from someone else i wouldn't really uh i, I think he actually played the list that won the challenge the day before it's okay. just uh rakdos rakdos Croxa. okay fine yeah, but you know, it, it's a it's a strange it's a strange dichotomy of both really wanting to win but not wanting to do any work to, to actually guarantee those wins. Yeah, so that that reaction where you lose and you described it as apocalyptic, that was me after every magic tournament when I was a kid. Yeah, oh same. Every little league game I I was a disaster and I am uh embarrassed about it in retrospect. No, I, I, but- I, I I just mean like you know, it just like really fires you up and gives you that drive. And you're just like, all right, you know, how do I need to like study and train to get better so that I don't lose again? But did you handle it well on top of that? Because I, uh, I certainly had that, but I also didn't handle it well. I I think that I, I did until I got pretty good. And mm, then, I, and then I was, well, so like if I'm bad and I lose, I know it's because I'm bad. So I have no right or reason to get upset at that it's like i probably blew it or i'm realizing like how my deck was bad or whatever and i'm just like okay i need to fix these things but then like once i got good and i would lose these people who like i could tell were not very good and you know me just being like an angry kid and whatever like all of this stuff i was like very mean to a lot of people Mm. yeah and it, it it was nothing to do with like what they did. I was probably in the same situation, honestly, where it's like, I blew it, which is why I lost. And instead of like, I would also like, you know, double down and like 
go do the training and get better and stuff like that. I, I always had that uh, because I wanted to avoid that, that feeling of losing. And I, I knew that there was more to learn and stuff like that. But like in the moment, I was just like, I want to make this person feel as bad as possible. Yeah, it's it's a weird response. And uh, I, I think like a huge part of my maturation process was working that out. And I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not having kids, so I guess this isn't something I actually have to worry about. But the idea of teaching a kid to lose well is so, so valuable. And I don't know the best way to do that. But if I were a parent, that would be one of the things that I would absolutely emphasize. It's just like, how do you grow from adversity and how do you not take it personal? And how do you see that like people will be better than you at things? And it's not a knock on you. You know, it's a, a chance to explore your potential and see how good you can be when you lose, not just the absolute indictment of who you are as a person. And that's the way I took it because I had such like a high opinion of myself at that point that there's no possible way someone could be better than, than me at this thing. But of course, everyone is better than me at most things. Like it's, it's just nonsense. And you, you have to learn how to see yourself as you actually are and accept who you actually are. Yeah. And I, I think I did that, you know, like I definitely knew my limitations and was pretty realistic about them, but I was also just like mean to other people because it made me feel slightly better. Mm. Uh, so I, I was a shitty kid for sure. But as far as like teaching your kids, it's like, I, I at this point, I don't think that I'm going to have kids either. But I, I would be interested in like trying those sorts of things to see if I could figure out how to actually teach them. But it's like, I don't, it doesn't need to be my actual kid to do that, you know? That, that's true. That's a good way of looking at it. But it, and... it seems so hard, right? Because like you're, you're talking about like an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old. Like there's no – even like 25-year-olds, right? Like there's yeah. no good age for you to be like, hey, you lost because you, you blew it. And that's okay. Uh, it just means that like this is point that you can learn from and and get better, right? And like no one takes that positively. There are just so many, so few people who are like, oh yeah, you're right. That's that's cool. I definitely recognize my inadequacies, and that's okay. It's like it's not the world we live in. Yeah, very true. And I, I don't know how to make it the world we live in. And I don't know if it should be the world. Like it, there's certainly challenges with fostering competitive fire under like, you can't always be the best because then you can just say, well, I, I didn't win. Okay. Like you need a mix of both, right? If you're going to be a, a great competitor, like you need to find that fire within you and you need to still not let it overcome you. And I, I'm sure the emotional regulation it takes to do so is just beyond most youths. Although I say that and like, I'm thinking of young magic players I know now who are just like very grounded, very balanced people. And maybe I'm just a crappy person <laughs> and it has nothing to do with age. And there, cause there's so many like great kids in magic right now who are just really not only good magic players, but good people on top of it. And I'm, I'm always impressed when I interact with them. Yeah. There were, there were a lot of kids I knew when I was, I don't know, maybe like 20 or something. And, uh, like John panic was one, Jesse river was another, who's like a very good magic player that I guarantee no one has ever heard of where I, w I was just like blown away being like, you know, two to five years, their senior or whatever. And just having them have the, the, the positive response without the negative And at such a young age, mm -hmm. it was like, it was immediately like what made me want to be friends with those people. Cause 
It was just yeah. like, yeah, they just have like all of the good and none of the bad. Yeah. When, when I think of someone like that, uh, the person who springs to mind for me is like uh, MTG Milan over on Twitter. Go follow MTG Milan. Oh, awesome yeah, kid. Yeah. Just like a, a great, smart kid, already incredible at magic, going to do amazing things if that's what he wants to do. And just like so grounded and aware of everything it's going to take to be a really great magic player. And it's just impressive to see someone with that kind of composure at a young age. Yeah, he he reminds me a lot of those kids too. And he he's another one of those people where I was just like, yeah, I definitely want to like, you know, hang out with this kid, get to know him because he's he's got it. You know, yep. like he's going to be able to figure out how to be successful in whatever he does, which is really awesome. Yep. Yeah, it's always great to see that. Yeah, it's it's wild. I think the the stages I went through were just like, I'm really bad at this. So I like if I complain, I'm just going to get made fun of, right? Because then they can just bring up how bad I am. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to feel stupid. So I just don't do that. I just put my head down and I just, I like, I lose and that's it. Uh, and then I get to the point where I'm good and I lose. And then I would go tell my friends that I like mold to four or something. And it's like, <laughs> maybe, maybe I did mold to four in game three, but I also blew game two. You know what I right. mean? Right. Right. So Half like the story. Yeah. You like lie, but I omission. And then I think, when I was like doing well and in a good mood and kind of like got what was going on, I would, I, I didn't have any of those stories to tell really. So I would like <laughs> tell stories where it's like, yeah, my opponent like did this and then this and then this, and I had multiplied that game and I won, you know? And it was like, those are the stories I was telling. And I was like, no matter where ending. Yeah. Yeah. Except it, it, after like a year of it, it wasn't a swerve anymore. You know? <laughs> Everyone just expected it. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I think like the first time that, that Tim Ayton was just like, I you know, I, I started with like, oh, I mulled a five and missed my third land drop. And Tim's like, yeah, you won. I got it. And I'm just like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop telling you these stories, Tim. <laughs> yeah, you've taken the fun away. Yep, yep. And I, I wondered like, you know, at what point he got sick of it before he finally said something, right? But <laughs> And then after that, there was like the brief period where it was like, cool for people to be like owning up to their mistakes. Like that was very in vogue. Yeah. I, I think I like that mode better as a, de a default, obviously like you want both in balance, but I'll always take the default mode of like, I made this mistake. Yeah. But it, it's still another one of those things where it's like, you're talking to your friends in between rounds and it's like, I just want to know your record, not your life story. <laughs> right. Or maybe I just want to know your life story and I don't care about your record. Also a very strong possibility. Yeah, either or, but instead they just want to tell me about how, you know, this very convoluted game state led to them getting a bad read and they made an attack and their opponent had it or whatever. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you, you blew it. But like, you, you know, you realize you blew it. You don't really need to tell me, you know, like, I don't really care. I can't do anything about it. <laughs> you realize where you messed up. I can't give you advice. I'm just like, yeah, sounds like you blew it. Like, okay, good talk. Yeah, no, no notes. So it's like it, that part is not bad, right? It's certainly way less toxic than like any of the other eras. But yeah, it is it is very strange. I do want to I guess like normalize more of that without like you know, the boring story or just like the seeking validation like yeah, you blew it, but it'll it'll be okay, champ. You'll get him the next one, you know, like pat on the head, whatever. Uh make this your your goal when we return to live magic. This conversation is making me miss going to a magic tournament. By Dude, the way. I'm, I I'm having like the surrounding emotions that come from like walking around a convention center right now. I did this for like five years straight and I don't know if it had any effect on anyone, but like 
I, you know, I'd walk up to people. This this happened more at like GPs than anything because they're so big, right? It's like round seven and you see someone that you didn't even know was there and you go up to them and you say like, you know, hey man, how have you been or whatever? And they're like, oh, I'm five and two. And I'm just like, I don't care about your record. I was asking about you. Right. You know, and I, I, I honestly want to normalize. What I really want to normalize is actual human interaction and not talking about magic. That's what you should do during magic tournaments. <laughs> Never mention magic under any circumstances. Seriously, seriously, do not mention your record ever. <laughs> ever. I, I don't think it's going to get taken that far, but I, I understand what you're going for. And uh, and then because at the end of the day, like say you're you've been like you know scrapping out at X and five, and then they announce the top eight, and you're like, oh, my friends in in the top eight. I've been talking to them all day, and I just didn't even know. Happy surprise, boom. Yeah, yeah, I've had that happen. I don't remember who it was exactly, but I just be like, oh, that person's been doing well this whole time. Yeah, I've yeah, had that. It happen. is nice. I've had that happen a couple times too, and I'm just like, damn, you know, that's that is rad that they made top eight, and also that they did not feel the need to you know brag to me about how they're thirteen zero or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Good focus. Yep. Game. Good luck.